Hey, welcome to the Town Hall Academy on Selling Your Business Valuation Strategies, where you'll get a great lesson on tactics to obtain a great value for your business. The caveat for a profitable transaction is that you need to have a successful and profitable business. And we do discuss some strategies on how to make that happen. You know, you get a guy's financials, um, you, you're going to want documents out of the point of sale system. You're going to want to see P&Ls. You're going to want to see tax returns and how to do our own evaluation of that to come up with uh, what we believe the value would be. Um, because you're right, a lot of shop owners, I mean, the joke is everybody wants a million dollars. And, uh, you know, well, why? Well, because that's what I want, right? That's what I need without really basis of going, okay, how did you come to that number? What multiplier did you use? What, what's your EBITDA? And then they, you know, you get the blank stare. Welcome, automotive aftermarketers, to a Remarkable Results Radio Town Hall Academy. Listen to learn just one thing from today's episode on your journey to remarkable results. Hey, so nice to have you here and partaking in the original Town Hall Academy, the aftermarket's weekly forum for the forever student, where we take a single subject each week and we openly discuss it so you benefit. Hey, it's Carm Capriato, the aftermarket podcast guy, thanking Jasper Engines for their support of the Academy. Performance and reliability, that's what Jasper's remanufactured diesel engines provide mile after mile. Their running completed engines are dynamometer tested with horsepower and torque ratings recorded. There's a nationwide warranty included too. Hey, talk about dependable service. Get that from jasperengines.com. Hey, I want to thank you for being part of the Digital Streaming Society. Yes, you've discovered the value of podcasts in the aftermarket. And I must say that four and a half years ago now, I brought the industry this podcast, and it has done nothing but grow and improve. We are always looking out for your best interest. Now, I know you've come to appreciate the voices, ideas, and trends that are helping to shape the future of the automotive aftermarket. And for that, I'm proud to have you as a dedicated and steady listener. We will always set the pace and trend for quality, and value for aftermarket podcasts. Hey, I'm delighted to have Greg Bunch, Bob Ward, and Joel Zaleski with me on this panel, who will inform you as we continue an important industry discussion on succession and business valuation. There are many misnomers about what can I sell my business for? Now, if you've never done the research, you'll find out it's much different than what you may want for your business, what the seller is willing to offer. You've got to have something to sell to a potential buyer. Now, if your only real asset is location, you could do well. However, you need much more than that if you want to sell and retire with a nest egg after years of hard work. So glad to have you all here. With me is Greg Bunch, the owner of Aspen Auto Clinic, five-star operation, Colorado Springs, Colorado, and the president of Transformers Institute that provides proven strategies to transform your business. So you mostly work with multi-shop owners, Greg, or people who want to be multi-shop owners, right? Yes, we, we get a good combination of both. Um, and people that, what we want to call uh, garage mahals, people that want to have, you know, two, three, four million dollar single locations. We've been able to help those folks as well. Bob Ward is with us from Warden LLC. And Bob believes that a perpetual business is profitable and sustainable without you as you pre- pre- prepare for sale or succession. And I, I love the strategy, being a perpetual business. I just love it, Bob. And thanks for being here. Well, I appreciate it. Every owner aspires to have their business continue beyond 
their retirement. We want to always provide for death disability, but more happily, they get to retire and get paid for their life's work. A, a true perpetual business. One of the reasons you're here, and you've also been a great contributor to the show. Thank you. And Joel Zaleski, partner at Cardinal Brokers. Joel started his career at Price Waterhouse Coopers before joining Monroe Inc. as the vice president of acquisitions and operations support. He bought a whole bunch of shops and added them to their group, uh, and uh, and now he's out uh, make doing deals, right, Joel? That's right. Ab- absolutely. I went, wanted to uh, hang my own shingles, so to speak, and, and so that's what I've been doing the last year. And Joel was on before as we were also talking about uh, the, our, our same topic here. So look, at here's how I want to I approach this, or at least I want to tell the audience um, a little bit of the strategy of this, this particular Town Hall Academy. I want to talk about the people side of the transaction, the place side of the transaction, call that location market. I want to talk the, about the profit of a deal structure and all of that, if you will, add people, place, profit, equals price. Hmm. How you like the way I stitched that together? You like that, guys? That's good. You, did you practice that? <laughs> I wrote that just 15 minutes ago, guys, because all of your great talking points that, that came into me. So let's start with the, you know, the place thing. Uh, and, and Joel, I want to go to you about factors that, in, uh, that impact valuation as far as the market conditions. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and that's a, you know, I'll, I'll kind of talk about it from a macro perspective. I mean, there are certainly uh, market conditions that we're seeing currently that, that have an impact on, you know, the number of deals getting done, you know, where they're getting done, et cetera. For example, interest rates, interest rates in their marketplace um, remain very favorable um, from for everyone's perspective, but certainly from a buyer's perspective, which means that there is a lot of cash out in the marketplace for companies and the consolidating type companies to get deals done. So I, I say that from a you know a macro perspective and as a market condition. There are other market conditions certainly that are more more micro, such as um, the location or the market in which companies are trying to um, expand in that certainly have an impact on the valuation. Are more markets uh, sexier, if you will, uh, than others? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there are there are newer markets where we're, you know, where the consolidation trend has perhaps lagged compared to others. So, for example, um, you know, New York. New York is a very mature market. There's been a lot of consolidation that's happened over the last 15 years. Um, there are newer markets where you also see a lot of economic growth. For example. North Carolina in the Charlotte area, where there's been a lot of um, a lot of consolidation more recently there, and a lot of the large consolidating companies are trying to you know expand their footprint into a market such as such as Charlotte. Florida is another good example where there's a lot of consolidation going on there. Um, it's a hot market, um, you know, f- for purposes of um, you know these larger consolidating companies to expand their footprint. So, Greg, the the shop owners that you work with, do do they realize the uh, uh, w- when they want to make a purchase? Because I think you're really helping guys grow. Am I right, Greg? Right, right. That's why Greg's perspective is so important here. Uh, Joel and Bob are doing deals and helping people uh, sell and and or maybe find someone who wants to buy and and grow. Greg's out there coaching people so that Joel and Bob will buy those places someday. <laughs> you know, and, and right. I, maybe I'm stretching it a little bit, but uh, 
you find different areas, uh, strength of market around the country, like Joel said? Almost every client that we have, I mean, they're they're not at the level of a Monroe or a Mavis or something like that. So they're looking in their market to, you know, be the dominant player, get to three to five to 10 within their local market. So those guys are really based geographically for where their main shop is and what they think the opportunities are. So, um, you know, it's not, we're not at a level where, you know, like Joel was talking about that, Hey, let's pick, you know, Atlanta, Georgia for, and I'm just making that up is the hottest market out there. So, um, they're all trying to get to Atlanta and put a, put a, you know, 10, 15 together and be able to flip that over. Nobody's at that level that we're talking about right now. They're really working in their local markets, but, um, everybody I talk to within their local markets, they know where the up and coming demographics are, where the, what direction the city is growing and you know, what, where the top shops are. So they have a ground level uh, expertise that, you know, you can run all the data through computers, but there is something about being having boots on the ground and being able to really know what your market um, and what the vibe is within your community. One more question to you, Greg, regarding that. When you're uh, coaching someone or working with someone on expanding and going from three to four to five stores, uh, are you working very carefully with the, the market and the, the demographic of where they want to grow to? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of a lot of us started out as technicians in the industry. So, you know, we move forward and we have the technician mindset. And, and one of that, one of the, one of the, the, thought processes that I have to overcome with people is, you know, we're not looking for the lowest rent. That is not how you go pick the new location, especially if down the future, we want to uh, give Joel a call and say, Hey, we, we packaged up five, six, 10 of these, you know, we, we want to move uh, from, Hey, selling it to a, to an employee, but we want to move and get a higher multiplier, sell it to a strategic buyer. Uh, we have to keep that in consideration. And, and I think we all know in real estate location is very important and so if it's on a main street, they got bays facing the main street, you know, they, they, you know, maybe take something that, that has a fair amount of tires being moved through it. That's going to be a better target, even if it's five or $6,000 more in rent than one that's off the back street, that maybe making more money because it's the same guy who's been running it for four years and it's extremely profitable. When you package that all together, that may not be the best acquisition based on the exit strategy that that person has. So we, we dissect that. And I tell them there's no, there's no cookie cutter. The, every single deal is different and you need to look at it. And as Stephen Covey says, begin with the end in mind. So what's the, what is the ultimate exit strategy? We work with, you know, a shop that uh, they have, five brothers. And, you know, I think the, the ultimate that the dad would love for each of the, you know, there, there to be five shops with five brothers. That's a different strategy than packaging them up and, and, you know, talking to some of the big boys. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Bob, when it comes to the people side, you know, you're, you're so big in building a perpetual business, you know, and I guess it's attractive to an owner to come in or a person who wants to buy the business, realizing that the business can run without the leader. For a business to truly have value, it needs to be able to operate successfully, at least at the level it is now when the owner departs. And I, I am not a consolidator. I am not a broker. I work with the current business owners to ensure that their business will continue beyond them. So nine out of 10 times, the transactions that I work on are key employees in the business. One in 10 is a family member. Nine in 10 of the uh, strategies that I work with are key employees. So it's, I'm, I'm not going to be the one to find buyers. There's already a buyer identified 
Nine out of 10 times going to be internal. Occasionally, someone from outside and I will help with that. It's primarily taking a, a business, just like the guy said, they started to generally as technicians, uh, perhaps a service advisor. They built a business from nothing. They survived the first five years, overcame all those challenges and difficulties and built something of value that they would like to get paid for. But the, the uh, opportunities for a consolidator to buy all of these independent auto repair shops, that's a very narrow market, as I'm sure Greg and Joel will say. It's not going to be 90% or 50% of these shops are going to get bought that way. Mm -hmm. But every owner would like to see their business continue. So they get paid, and the next owner has the opportunity to realize their dreams. The employees, community, and customers are all cared for. So one of my four P's was people, and I think you kind of landed right there to... Uh... Well, let me expand on that just a little bit. Profits are the core of the business valuation. We're going to normalize the cash flow, find what's really coming out of the business that's attributable to the owner. And then there's going to be a market multiple that will equal the blue sky or goodwill value. And then you've got the assets. But the goodwill value is the largest component. And where do the profits come from? Profits come from the people. It's not the stuff in the business. So the key and three of the six metrics that I use in my proprietary valuation formula are all based on people. And I'll just share them right now. One is a function of the independence of the business from the owner. Can the owner depart and the business is going to purr along without how long has the uh, sales staff, the uh, customer-facing staff been there? How likely are they going to stay? And then the third is the production staff, the technicians. If you've got high turnover in the business, you've got instability. You've got longevity and systems in place, and that business can run without the owner. That's going to deserve a premium valuation card. We need to talk about that right now since you brought that up. And, you know, as a factor of EBITDA, I know that... Shop owners have said to me, yeah, I spent some time in the shop. I got a little yellow pad out and I started to write down what my tire machine cost me when I bought it new. And they start going through, oh, there's inventory and there's a there's 400 gallons of oil over there. And they add it all up and they say, hmm, wow, okay, $500,000. Well, the business is, God, they got to pay me 500000 for everything else that I'm doing. I have a million-dollar business. And that that seems to be... Um, the way that a lot of people think that haven't become part of a 20 group or coaching and haven't studied this. And the reason that we do these shows is that we help people uh, in this, in their personal network to learn this stuff. So when we evaluate the business and we're looking for that big piece of, ooh, who will pay me for all these years of growing this great business so I can transist it to someone that's called goodwill. And it is a factor of what's called EBITDA. I'd love for you three to tackle that because I think that may be the biggest component for someone thinking about what can I sell my business for, but there's so much work underneath to get to that level. Yeah, I mean, listen, I can certainly talk talk to it, um, you, know, certain, you know, from a buyer's perspective, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll talk to a little bit. I'm sure Bob can add some more perspective. Um, you know, I talk about it from the, you know, from the terminology of EBITDA or adjusted EBITDA, um, which I think, you know, Bob, Bob's, you know, looking at it the same way. He, he calls it maybe, you know, something a little bit different, normalized cash flow. Um, but they really fundamentally mean the same thing. I mean, we, you know, we talked before. Joe, explain what EBITDA is to our yep. listeners. 
Yeah, so EBITDA is earnings before interest, depreciation, taxes, and amortization. So you take the net profit of your business and you add back depreciation that's being run through the business, taxes that are being run through the business, any interest that you're paying. So those non-cash type items, those those expenses that um, you know have a, a multi-year run out to them oftentimes, you use that to normalize your profit or the free cash flow of the business to get you to, all right, how much is this business really put off? And that's the way that buyers are going to look at it, you know, for the basis of formulating what they're willing to pay you for your business. So adjusted EBITDA. Now, one item that I didn't talk about is the adjusted side of it, meaning, you know, what buyers will will do as well is they will, they will give sellers um, the benefit of owner-related adjustments, meaning if the seller um, in, in owning that business is paying for um, their cell phone, maybe some vehicle expenses, maybe there are some family members involved in the business, um, those expenses that are not inherent in running the business in the future, um, those are often added back as well or allowed to be added back for purposes of um, forming the valuation. So they, we refer to it as adjusted EBITDA. Which is a big factor in why um, a, 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 an accountant should be part of a transaction like this so that they can do that heavy lifting for you? Or would this be something an owner would do? No, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, it, it, it sounds perhaps more complicated than it really is. I think most owners, at least that I talk to, once you explain what it is, they very quickly understand the number that they're um, that we're talking about. I think where, where owners sometimes need a little bit of coaching is, all right, what are, what are those owner related adjustments that I can in fact add back or that, you know, a buyer will give me credit for. And, but quite frankly, it's, it's not that complicated. I mean, um, I don't necessarily think a CPA is necessarily be involved, but, but more often than not, um, you know, they are because they're going to their CPAs or, or whoever is helping them prepare their taxes at the end of the year. Taxes, uh, the profit and loss statement. And I think it's a great point. I think this is this could be a really big takeaway from this episode is that we're uh, that you're learning as a service professional, a shop owner, what you need to do and prepare when you put the shingle up. That's um, absolutely right. You know, with me helping people on the buying side of these businesses, you know, there's two ways to do that. One is they find something that's publicly listed and, you know, obviously a business broker is involved in that. And the business brokers actually, this is one of their expertise. What they get paid for is creating that owner value number as high as possible and adding everything back. And so on those cases, we help our clients work and really figure out what that true net profit is to, to come up with their offer. And then on, on the other side, you know, we're bringing training to the market for, okay, you know, you get a guy's financials and you, you're going to want documents out of the point of sale system. You're going to want to see P&Ls. You're going to want to see tax returns and how to do our own evaluation of that to come up with uh, what we believe the value would be. Um, because you're right, a lot of shop owners, I mean, the joke is everybody wants a million dollars. And, uh, you know, well, why? Well, because that's what I want, right? That's what I need without really basis of going, okay, how did you come to that number? What multiplier did you use? What, what's your EBITDA? And then they, you know, you get the blank stare, which is okay because a lot of people aren't, uh, that's not the way, what they're focused on. They're, they're focused on, you know, how much they make, how much they put in their bank, how much they can take out without hurting the business. They're not thinking through that process. So whether it's, you know, on the business broker side or from, you know, one of my clients being able to, 
to, to, you know, Joe comes to them and says, Hey, I want to retire. You're a good shop owner. Do you want to buy my business? Let's down and have coffee. Okay. First thing, obviously get an NDA signed and let's start peeling back and looking at those finances. And we've got some guys that are really getting sharp at looking at other businesses, P and L's and stuff and, and being able to discern it, even if, even if it's not set up the same way that would be through a business broker. NDA, non-disclosure agreement, everyone. So that uh, we have so many acronyms around. I just wanted to help people. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Thank you. Bob, your perspective on this? Well, because I do not have cash buyers like the other two gentlemen are working to find for our shop owners, I am working with the average shop owner out there that is not going to have the benefit of someone writing a big check. So in the some 50 transactions I've done in my career, one wrote a check. The mm. others had very, very modest means and the structures were a transition over time. Five, seven years is, is pretty typical where the seller is transitioning out of the business duties, responsibilities, and the key employee is assuming those duties and responsibilities and authority and acquiring an equity percentage over time for an ultimate buyout. And I want to point out in, in that type of a transaction where you're not just getting a big check and walking away, the true value that owners need to consider is all of the cash flow and benefits of their business, such as the continuing pay and dividends from that transition period of time, that five to seven years of continuing cash flow the rent that they are most likely getting since most are owners of the real estate, and then the ultimate sale value of the property later. So in order to get all of those benefits, the transaction must be successful, hence the business needs to be perpetual, it needs to continue. So for my audience, this is the one that's not going to get a half million or a million dollar check and walk away. This is going to be a structured transition that has creative financing and everybody's going to benefit. And all that value that the owners have created over 20, 30, 40 years is going to get realized. Carm here with Adam Christmas, customer service group leader here at Jasper Engines. Hi. Hi, Carm. Adam, any great stories of exceptional customer service in the last six months that you'd be willing to share? Well, I think that one story comes to mind. A longtime associate of ours, family member, had purchased a product and had contacted me uh, because they were having some troubles out of town. As it turned out, it wasn't even our product that, that had failed, but we were able to get them to one of our preferred installers, get them the help that they needed, and get them back on the road, and got a, got a thank you later from, from the daughter because of how great that was handled. Kind of like Nordstrom's level of service. Yeah. Uh, again, it's the most important thing. Uh, if you don't have customers, you, you don't have anything else. How long have you been here at Jasper? Been here a little over 13 years. I love it. Uh, it's, it's a great company. There's so many things that Jasper offers the associates that other companies can't or won't. It's, it's just a great place to be. Hey, thank you, Adam. A member of the 100% associate-owned company at jasperengines.com. There's an awful lot, Greg. I mean, you probably have heard of a lot of transactions that have that internal candidate. Right. So, and that was a question, actually, Bob, you said you've done over 50 of these transactions? 
Yes, and I, I do everything from the beginning, the valuation, solve for financing, and all the legal details. Just put the whole thing together, and it takes about an average of a year to get all of that done. Right. So, you know, as my clients go out there and they're looking for acquisitions, the thing that gets brought up is owner finance, which I assume out of your 50 deals, except for that one that somebody wrote a check, there's a, an element of owner finance in, embedded within the deal, right? Well, there's actually four potential ways for that ultimate terminal value to get paid. So I'm just going to give you a real short illustration that over, say, five years, we've created a way for the buyer to accumulate, say, 35% equivalent equity in the business. And now they've right. got to pay out that last 65% five years from now. They either have the money, that's, that's option A, which is virtually zero, Option B, they can get the financing from a bank, which is still really hard for the younger buyers to be able to do. Option C is pure owner financing, carrying the note. And option D is we extend the five years to six and get a little more equity or extend it to seven to get that okay. final down. So there's the four ways of that terminal point. So the, the reason I bring that up, some of the, you know, if I can bring if I can help facilitate a strong buyer, meaning the guy already has three or four locations, he's got a strong you know, financial statement, I'm finding that the owners are more willing to talk owner carry than, hey, I want to sell it to uh, a key employee that you know, there's, that, that there's an inherent higher risk. And I assume that's where your company steps in and, and works ways to mitigate that risk and set it up to uh, make that buyer feel more comfortable in that circumstance, or, or the seller, I'm sorry. Yeah, perfectly said. And, and actually, we do need both parties to be comfortable because nothing will get done without that comfort confidence to make sure that the uh, the end result is what everybody needs. You said it very well. Thank you. Hey, Bob, let me ask you a question. I'm, I'm an internal candidate. Greg is selling me his business, and we worked a five-year deal to uh, through the profitability of the company to own an equity position of 35%. And you had just you had mentioned that. Is that good enough for the SBA? SBA is, is a backstop or a guarantor of a regular bank. So if the bank underwrites a loan and they're willing to give you 75% of your actual collateral, which usually is not very much for a younger buyer, mm -hmm. they just don't have a lot of assets. That would be different than what Greg's talking about. There's five locations and it's easy for them to have access to capital. For the market that I work in, Capital is scarce. We need to be a little more creative and build that confidence. So that if a bank, a regular bank, would lend 75%, the bank may be willing to lend 85 or 90% because the SBA would take that first 15% of risk. So you still have to have regular credit underwriting to get an SBA backstop. Gotcha. Thanks so much. Appreciate that. Interesting. We've done some shows on this, and it, the discussion continues to be almost exactly the same. Hey, Joel, um, can we do a little discussion on how to increase, or the whole team here? Joel, I'd like you to start it off. Uh, how to increase the value, the valuation of our business? Yeah, so, so anytime someone's starting to think about selling or potentially selling their business, you know, I, there are certainly steps that they can be thinking about and taking um, that ultimately could um, impact and in, in, in many cases significantly impact the valuation. I think that the first and foremost one um, is a point that Greg made up 
or, or, or pointed to earlier is with respect to rents. You know, what we find oftentimes is that, um, you know, that, that the, the sellers or the business owners will also own the real estate. And, you know, what, what I think is very important is when you have a business that's owned by the same, you know, individual as the real estate, um, that they are charging the business market rents. You know, I can tell you, um, you know, in, in many situations, they, the, the, the business is not paying their full share of rents. Um, they're just paying something significantly lower than market rents. And, you know, I think when it comes to time to value the business, um, you know, those market rents are, are a subtraction from the overall valuation, meaning if the current business is only paying half of the market rents, but going forward, whoever buys that store has to pay, you know, a market rent, um, that's going to be a subtraction from the overall EBITDA number, which drives down the, the overall valuation. Are you suggesting if you're going to plan to sell or succeed that you do, you, you start writing the ship a little bit? That, that's right. Yeah. Start normalizing the P&L. Um, you know, I think it's extremely important um, that a um, that a business owner has full visibility of all the expenses that they need to be paid out of the business. And, and one of those is the business paying its full share of the rent. Um, you know, and I think that that's one that um, we often have to make adjustments for as part of the valuation because the store isn't paying. You're right. That's my point. If 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 there was a shop owner who knocked on the door of a, a shop owner next town over and said, hey, I'm, I'm looking to, I want to come in the marketplace. Uh, do you have interest in selling? Okay. I haven't had a chance to normalize my P&L, but if I sat down with the potential buyer, uh, it shouldn't be that difficult to explain. I've been charging myself a whole lot lower rent. Sure, sure. I mean, you know, I look also look at it from the perspective of I think any business owner, um, you know, they're driven by the results of the business. Um, you know, it's, I think it's human nature that you you want to be profitable because, it, you know, you, you want to show a profit of the business to keep you pushing sales, keep your team pushing sales. And so if you're not, that business isn't absorbing all the expenses that it really needs to, are you really, are you really realizing the full opportunity um, in that store, if that makes sense. And I'm sure, I'm sure, Greg, that's something that you, you probably come across as part of your, you know, your, your coaching, or at Absolutely. least have talked to, talked to, uh, you know, the shop owners Greg, about. Yeah, Greg, any, any great examples without mentioning names that you can share so that our listener can absorb some of the moves they need to make? Yeah, um, my mine was, and so right. I'm a lot of people have read my biography. I started as a technician, worked my way up in this business, and um, you know the joke is that technicians make really bad car salesmen because we buy a car off a customer and we think, hey, you know, all I got to do is put a water pump on it and I can flip this and make fifteen hundred dollars. Well, then you find out the brakes are bad and that's got an oil leak, and then by the time you're into it, because we're mechanics, we want to fix everything on the car before we sell it. And then we find out that, you know, we've put $2,500 into a $2,000 car and, uh, and and we should just go back to fixing cars. So a lot of technicians that want to sell their business look at the same thing. Well, I got to fix everything up. Um, everything's got to be perfect before I sell it, thinking that, that all that money is going to come back to them on the sale. And so there's a, there's a balance there in, you know, how much do you fix it up? Um, how much new equipment do you buy? Because if you think about it, and I'll just throw out, I know that, you know, multipliers could be two to nine or 10 nowadays, but let's just for 
for simple math, say it's a four times multiplier you're going to get for your, your business. You go out and you buy a hundred dollar printer. Um, when you could have got by with the old one that could cost you $400 of, uh, when you sell the business, which what could have gone in your pocket. So, um, you know, you don't want to sell something that's just, everything's got to be replaced because that's going to devalue it, but you don't want to put all brand new equipment and do everything that, you know, make it a brand new business too, because the, the, you're not going to get your money back on doing, on fixing every little thing within the business. I think that's a very important point that people don't necessarily understand unless you're talking an asset sale. Am I right, Craig? Right. Uh, one of the businesses we looked at, we did an evaluation on and we were pretty far off from what the owner wanted to what we were willing to pay. And so we walked away from it and uh, the accountant pointed out that all of his equipment was completely depreciated. So even before taking a tour in the building, I knew that, you know, his lifts are 15 or 20 years old. He's, he, he knew the strategy to go, I'm not going to put a bunch of money into this. Um, I'm going to, you know, so whoever bought it and somebody did buy it, um, I know that they're, they're going to have to do a lot of equipment upgrades um, that they probably didn't think about when they bought it because they, were, they didn't come from the industry and they didn't look at that kind of thing. Anyone who want to tackle the multiplier? I mean, Greg, you brought it up. It's been discussed earlier in, in this episode. And uh, and you said, oh, anywhere from, I, I don't know, four to 10 or wherever the, the numbers are. Oh, I've seen, twos. you know, I've seen one and a half. But, you know, and, and, I, and I know that, you know, Bob, one of his P's was the people. Um, a lot of these shops that they, it's going to be, it's going to be a serious downturn because the owner runs everything. The owner's the manager. Uh, the owner's underpaid. And so, yeah, we're making good money, but at the end of the day, if someone's going to buy it and not go run it themselves, which, you know, is a different model than what, you know, Bob's talking about, probably this key employee is going to step into that role. But what Joel's talking about is somebody has got to step into that role. And that may be a six figure person that needs to go in there and run it. And that's got to be calculated into it. So if that person doesn't exist, that puts a higher risk on this, on the buyer that, Hey, is the, can I hire the right person? Are they going to be a cultural fit? What's the cust- how are the customers going to react when Joe, the shop owner that's been there 20 years is gone? How are the employees going to react, you know, when they love working for Bob and now all of a sudden, um, you know, this new guy comes in, there's, there's a, it, it just adds risk. And when you add risk, you lower the multiplier. And I'll add, uh, I use, I use a valuation multiplier that can be anywhere from zero. We really don't want to be buying this business except for the assets and people don't want to buy a bunch of used equipment. They want to buy the cash flow. So the multipliers that I work with are, are typically zero to five, with the average being two and a half to three. And the, the simple, the simple way I would like to suggest owners look at this to really take all these nuances and details and, and blend them down just a little bit, distill them, is businesses have stuff to sell. Furniture, fixtures, equipment, used phone systems, lifts, stuff. That's not where the value is. That stuff is going to be at, at liquidation value. eBay, Craigslist, you're not, that's not what someone wants to buy. They want to buy the sustainability of that cash flow. And as Joel mentioned and Greg uh, as well, owners need to understand the truth of their financials. They need to know what that true seller's discretionary cash flow is adjusting for their salaries, adjusting for rent, adjusting for all those personal things that these guys already mentioned, you get the true cash flow. And then 
you've got the multiplier, which we're talking about now. And I would uh, like everybody to think of that's listening to this, that that multiple is really a confidence factor by the buyer of how well that cash flow will be sustained. The higher the confidence that we're going to have at least that cash flow, when the owner steps away, the higher the value will be. And if the owner leaves and all the goodwill and the customer relations and the employee relations and the institutional knowledge, if all of that goes away with the owner, that's a very low valuation. I, I hope that was helpful. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, I'll tell you, I'll add to that, Bob. I mean, I think one, you know, from where, you know, the space that I'm doing deals in, you know, I think the, the confidence factor is absolutely first and foremost. I think the other thing that you find with the, the larger strate strategic buyers that are doing deals is also um, the, the synergies that they're able to get out of the business. Now, I think, you know, in, in your transactions where it's, you know, one single owner buying, you know, a single owner, you don't necessarily have those synergies that drive up a multiple where if, if, you know, if I'm selling stores to, uh, you know, a consolidator, a consolidator that has a thousand stores already, well, they're, they're, they're purchasing product and tires and equipment, et cetera, for much less. And so they're able to get more synergies out of it, which also drives up the multiple. So, you know, it I think could you know, Bobby, drive up the multiple. Absolutely. Fair point could drive up the multiple, but I would tell you that on average, you know, we're dealing more in the five to five to 10, you know, maybe somewhere in the average of, you know, six to seven multiple. Um, but that's a, you know, that's a function of, um, you know, doing deals with the much larger, larger buyers. And I think the difference there are the synergies that they, they're able to get, which drives up. The you price. know, that's a great point. If you're looking to grow, uh, like Greg's group does, you know, they're, they're looking to add stores and potentially sell to a regional consolidator and then up the chain. And, you know, the big dog eats the medium dog eats the little dog. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the higher the multiple can be if you've developed the, the right business. One of the points I want to make is there's going to be people listening to this not only today and next week, but, you know, way into the future because podcasts will live out there evergreen. I just want to be crystal clear uh, what the multiple means. If your business is throwing out $100,000 a year, all this normalized adjustable number and uh, uh, someone believes it's sustainable and, and I want this and they say, I'll, I'll give you 200000 for the business. Well, the, um, that, that times two is that goodwill factor. And as Greg was saying, God, if I was making you know $500,000 a year and somebody wanted to pay me 10 times that, that's a really big number. And, and, and it goes back to the whole thing and, and the reason that there's, that we're trying to drag so many people over the line in profitability in this automotive aftermarket of ours is that if you're, as buyers become more sophisticated, and Greg, tell me, Bob, if I'm right or wrong here, you've got to run a better, stronger, smarter, more profitable business. And you've got to go out and get help to do that just in your very own world of having a comfort level and earning you know, the right kind of money. We can't talk about this enough. And the thing I love about this kind of podcast is, is, is if we can talk about selling and valuations, it may prompt people to run a better business. Right, Greg? 
Absolutely. Yeah, that was, uh, I spoke on that for four hours at the World Pack Expo last year, and they're having me back to speak this year Perfect. on that exact topic, Perfect. because it is such an important topic. Um, and, you know, th th there's a couple ways to go about, right? They can fix up their business, they could do an acquisition, you know, they could go from one to three and, and really have a good solid business with a top EBITDA and get top dollar for it. Or some some of these folks, you know, I hate to say it, they're they're in their in their twilight years, they're burned out, they're tired. Uh, hopefully they squirreled uh, enough money away to, to retire off of, plus their social security. Um, and really at the end of the day, you know, like Bob said, maybe they're a zero, a half, a one. Um, they really don't have a lot of options to sell. And if, if you look on Craigslist or, or eBay, you'll find shops are closing and it's a, it's a fire sale. They try and get 50 grand for the equipment, the phone number, and the database, and they're you know, they're retiring and, and, and not living on very much, but it's sad because all that work that they put into it for 20, 30 years, they never thought of it that I need to build this thing to sell it, that this is my retirement asset. They just looked at it as a glorified job. And at the end of the day, um, it's, it, it can be a sad situation, but you know what? Some people are okay with it. Some people are perfectly fine. They've paid off their house. They've paid off of some other investments and they they didn't look at their business as their retirement. Um, but I think that, you know, more and more of the audience that are listening to the show are, are looking at, you know, how do I build a business that ultimately, whether it's two years from now or 20 years from now is a sellable asset, um, as the consolidation wave rolls through our industry. Greg made such a good point that most people, most, I'm going to say, I'm going to say it's 90% don't plan for the end of their working years. There just isn't a plan. And these are among the finest people in the United States, the entrepreneurs who have created something of value and have employed people and supported families and customers. They, they deserve to have something more. They just need to plan for it. And if they plan early, as I say, there's always a place to start. You could be 25 and starting a business. You can start then for the future. If you plan, not only will you realize more at the end, but you'll be such a, a much better operator during those years that Greg was talking about. Rather than wait to, to fine tune your business when you're 62, fine tune it when you're 35 and make a lot more money along the way and build right. value in those options. Well, look, at, let, let's wind this thing down and it, with, with this thought in my mind. And, you know, we started with uh, we started with people, place, profits equals price. And l let me throw this this thought that I have at you. And I'd love to hear all of your comments and summary here at the end. The seller has to understand that people are willing to pay good money for a well-run operating business that has people and processes in play and market share. And, and, and you know, they're, they're going to want to steal my business. Yeah, if they want the location and you have nothing else to sell. And and I think that's the point. Bob, you, you made the greatest point in the world. Fix your business at 35, not at 62. All came from a background that was not business related. We came from a technical background, like almost every small business owner. So you start with this dream of taking a technical skill and becoming an owner. The key is, are you truly becoming an owner and a business person? And that's where Greg and, and other uh, 
coaches and 20 groups, et cetera, come in. They're, they're very, very, very valuable. Give you your final word, Greg. Sum this up for us, man. I'm excited that you're doing this show, Carm. I think uh, it's huge what you're bringing to the industry and this kind of uh, talk and education. And, you know, my hope is that there's folks out there that aren't too busy wrenching to stop and listen to this um, because we're, we're, we are truly talking about the future of our industry and what it's going to look like. And, you know, I, I think I've shared this with you on the show before. The whole reason I call my, my coaching uh, training group Transformers is because I want to be the biggest part I can be to transform the automotive industry. And it goes right back to what Bob said. It's you've got to transform the owners from a technical, I'm the best technician in town mentality to I'm going to be the best business owner. If we do that, uh, we're going to take the black eye off of our industry. So there's a lot uh, to this whole subject. And uh, again, thank you, Carm, for, and to Jasper for making this a reality and bringing, this, uh, bringing light to this. Thanks, Greg. Appreciate that. Uh, now you, you're motivating me to get on my soapbox. <laughs> you? What? This past Monday, I did a For the Record episode on struggling shops, and and I did it. I, I came back from ASTE out in North Carolina from the uh, IGONC, and I met some people that were there because their shops were struggling, and they were there to learn. I saw people raise their hand and say, you know, you see these 35-year-old somethings, husband and wife, they're in this perpetual deep, you know, whole spiral. And, and I and I ranted on the fact that you you need to admit, you know, uh, fear is making you scared. It is it is putting you in a position you you aren't healthy at. Please go listen to For the Record. It came out Monday, and, and I did ten minutes on you know what we have to what the the struggling shop owners need to do but i also put the challenge out to the successful people to reach out and have coffee with someone make a friend every single successful shop owner today came from that holy hell right right and it's not just in our industry bob said it you know this is the backbone of the united states is small business and it's the you know the technician whether it's a hvac a, a cook um, right you know, there's, there's, it's all over the place. So cook, can't run a restaurant, love to cook. That, that right. it's the same story over and over again. So thank you for those kind words and for uh, allowing me to get up and say, it's time, everybody. Joel, you have the last word. You know, I think it's important that, um, you know, owners, that, that, you know, they get busy with their day to days. I mean, they're taking care of uh, customers um, and taking care of running a successful business. But I think it's important that, you know, at some point, um, periodically that, that these owners, you know, think about things like, you know, valuation, think about things like what's my succession plan. No one thinks about, um, you know, what could happen, you know, um, it's, you know, I think it's important that if, if shop owners don't have a succession plan, don't have a family member that's going to take it over or a key employee, um, that, you know, like that Bob deals with, I think it's important that they really start to, to put those plans in place to plan for the future. Um, you know, I think that there is, there is an aging population out there of shop owners. And, um, you know, I think there's been a lot of consolidation as we all know in this space over the last 10 or 15 years, but, but I think that, you know, that's only going to accelerate over the next 10 years because of that. So, right. 
So I think getting that succession planning and starting to think about these type of topics are extremely important. Even if it's not, you know, uh, you know, they're looking to retire tomorrow, maybe it's five, maybe it's 10 years from now, but it's important that they lay the foundations now to do that. Thanks for that. By the way, um, Greg and I, along with, um, Jason Rainey and Rick Schwartz are doing a panel discussion at Apex on this very, very subject. We're going to go in a whole lot deeper. We're really talking about aftermarket 2030. What's this whole consolidation thing going to look like and how are we going to get there? And, of course, if there's opportunities to buy or sell and grow. So uh, thank you for being on that panel, Greg. Uh, It'll be just in a few weeks. And uh, hey, everyone, thanks for being here. Town, what's that? <laughs> I can't believe it's coming up so fast. Know, it's but amazing. Yes. It's amazing. Hey, thanks for being here, Town Hall Academy. Have a good weekend, everyone. Thanks for being on board to listen and learn from the premier automotive aftermarket podcast. Until next time.